You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience outside of the twilight zone, your only respite from the twilight zone here at Conservative Review. It is December 21st. It is Friday. Now, I know a lot of you did not hear our previous podcast because Thursday's show did not post until today. So some of you are hearing them together so you don't get confused. There was episode 325 was on the lack of leadership, a lot of domestic policy. We ended off with foreign policy. So it will flow seamlessly into this one, 326, Foreign Policy Friday, as always, with Jordan Shackdale. Jordan, how you doing? Is it is this the most insane week of your life? I mean politically. Oh, it has to be <laughs> It has to be top five in terms of the foreign policy developments we've seen this week. Well, for me, it's domestic and foreign policy. So you you get the luxury of of focusing. I wish I could do that. Um, So the two together, it's just, it is utterly insane. It's Murphy's Law times 100. Um, Obviously, for our listeners, we got the budget showdown on the border. Trump finally grew a spine. And look what happened. It worked. We spoke about that on the previous show. Um, I laid out in at Conservative Review, before we get to foreign policy, make sure you look at my piece on how you could fund the border and get around the shutdown without 60 votes. You force a talking filibuster, and I explain directly what that means and the optics and how you would grind down the Democrats. Ultimately, it's a fairy tale, not because it can't be done, but because we don't have 51 votes. We don't have 30. We have maybe 10 Senate votes there. It's because Republicans in the Senate are horrible. That is the truth there. But let me segue into I'm getting a lot of questions from you guys. You want to know the truth on Syria. Um, We've ripped Trump on a lot of things. He's caved on a lot of things. A stupid farm bill, jailbreak. He first caved on the border and then uncaved. Well, is this another cave? He's pulling out of Syria. As you well know, we are one of the only shows here where we don't look at things in a vacuum. We're relentlessly consistent. We look at multiple angles at the same time. And this is really, it's foreign policy is governed by prudence and perspicacity, the facts on the ground. But it's also similar to domestic policy in the sense that you got to look at multiple policies at once. Take healthcare. A lot of people will say, well, Daniel, you're right, but if we just, uh, Stop subsidizing. I mean, people couldn't afford it in healthcare. Well, it's only like that because of the market distortions of what government is doing with the regs and the subsidies. If you followed our full blueprint and model, you wouldn't have the problem. Ditto for student loans and college tuition. Ditto for agriculture uh, subsidies and prices for food. It's it's a similar thing. And that's what happens in foreign policy. We do a bunch of stupid things. They're like, well, you have to do this because otherwise, well, no. A lot of people believe in things for different reasons. There's a lot of different visions. Um, a lot of people criticize on the cheap and take cheap shots. Obama shouldn't have done this or Trump shouldn't have done this. And they don't give a vision. Well, what would you do? And we're the only ones who have been doing that. So this is very nuanced. And and I, I think this is a debate you all deserve and you should get. And 
Jordan and I are going to do this a little bit somewhat, deb- even though we pretty much agree 100%, but we're going to do this a little bit debate style to flesh out argument, counter argument, and then come up with a full vision of what is happening here. Um, to start off, all right, Jordan, what am I missing that last night we are in middle of a border shutdown? I mean, this is a time that tries men's souls. If you care about America, you care about politics, care about policy, this is all in. McConnell's nothing. Like, Schumer and Pelosi, you will not shut down our border patrol and empower the drug cartels. No, 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 nothing. He puts out a statement, how dare Trump, you know, kind of force out Mattis, which is a whole other thing going on, and then virtue signal over pulling out of Syria. And I'm thinking to myself, Dude, you don't give a damn about our borders, but you care about the non-existent borders of a tribal warfare? What is going on? Unpack this for us. It's really, if we're starting with Afghanistan, it's really unbelievable that they seem, Senate and uh, House members seem to prioritize what's going on in Afghanistan, which has been, I think, a five-plus trillion dollar effort when you take into account all the costs, as opposed to finding $5 billion to fund the border wall. It's just, it's so outrageous that they're caught up in this instead of prioritizing border security. Um, I I don't even know where to start. You know, Mitch McConnell is, is a political animal. So I, I don't think that he's coming at this from, you know, genuine, he's, I don't think he's genuinely concerned. I think he's just, (laughs) taking into account who the major players are and you have several open border spokes, you know, you have the Cokes, you have the chamber of commerce who are really in his ear. And he would rather talk about general Mattis because general Mattis has a lot of respect amongst sure. the bipartisan foreign policy disaster class. And it's like the shiny object instead of, you know, having to whip the vote, to get border security passed, he wants to instead um, support General Mattis, who, by the way, served as Secretary of Defense for the last two years. And President Obama had four secretaries of defense. So why, you know, are, did people not freak out when President Obama was going through secretaries of defense? So it's, it's quite odd that we have this, you know, obsession with Mattis resigning over Syria and Afghanistan, apparently. Um, that Congress is all up in arms about this when it's really, you know, not that big a deal. And, you know, as we can discuss, uh, Secretary Mattis, um, you know, we really respect his military service and, you know, he developed an unbelievable reputation as a Marine commander, but he really didn't cut it as Secretary of Defense. And I don't think that you'll hear that on TV. Um, but in terms of advancing American national interests, he was, I don't think he did the job. And, and I think discussing Mattis is really a good springboard to what we have been doing here. And we don't have time to rehash everything we've discussed in other shows because it would be a 10-hour show. But at least to use the tools we've built upon to clear up the confusion over Syria, what's good about Trump, what Trump did, what's what's concerning – how some of that are separate issues that are not related necessarily to the pullout, but if he would be doing other strong moves, it wouldn't be a problem in which we called for having a consistent vision. And that's because, you know, Mattis, here, here's the thing with a lot of the military generals. First of all, let's remember, these are the same generals that literally disobeyed orders and against Trump and uh, 
wanted to were, were adamant about transgenderism in the military, which which no sane person could believe that that uh, helps our military ready, readiness. So there's clearly a problem with the mil- with with the general class to begin with. But but on top of that, the problem is these guys are good at. I tell you, okay, go to this nook and, and cranny in this country, work with these people, and do this. So they go and do it. It's tactical. It's a mission. That's what a military man is. But it's incumbent upon the civilian political leadership, as our founders envisioned, to give a vision of what we want to do. What is our strategic interest? What harms us? What doesn't? What's the risk versus return matrix? What do we expect to do? And really, again, this is why it's you need a, it's better for Congress to do this rather than these just, you know, we get involved and then we have all the problems. We don't get the country behind what we're doing and what we're not doing. That's where Mattis falls apart. He could know how to take that building and that place and that strategic um, choke point. But is there a purpose to it or is there a better thing we can be doing um, you know, and that's something that these people do not discuss. So that's the thing with Mattis. Um, any more comments you want to make about Mattis before we go on? Yeah, I think Mattis, as you said, Mattis does a really good job when he is um, given a mission such as you need to take out ISIS's uh, hold on territory in Syria and Iraq. And you know, the, that mandate was delivered by President Trump, you know, agree or disagree with it. And I think we had some problems with, you know, kind of only focusing on the Sunni insurgency. But when it comes to the tactical level, you know, Mattis led the U.S. military and delivered completely, um, you know, can totally wiped out ISIS's caliphate. They barely hold um, much territory, you know, we can see, we'll probably see a resurgence of the Sunni insurgency because of the realities on the ground and, you know, the population makeup there. But in terms of, you know, eliminating what ISIS had in Syria, um, I think that, you know, General Mattis as Secretary of Defense did a great job of that. But the problem is when it came to the overarching grand strategy, there was no particular vision there. And what we were doing, you know, if you want to kind of pivot to Syria, um, we can talk about, you know, how the mission went off course and we never really had um, something to really go for in terms of protecting America's national interest there. Jordan, I really want to rip the scab off here. I really want to get as deep and broad as we can get to encompass Syria, the Sunni Salafists, Hezbollah, Iran, Iraq, Turkey, Russia, Israel, Lebanon, and tie into the Western Hemisphere and Hezbollah there too. So we'll 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 try to we'll try to get this in. I, I want to maybe just give a two minute summary and then have you unpack it. Um, the way I see things is like this. Um, the first piece of evidence I'm admitting into the record here that we'll link to is. My September 3rd, 2013 op-ed at foxnews.com, GOP leaders should let Allah sort out Syria's Islamic civil war. 
It's amazing reading it five years later because you see how remarkably consistent I am. And this is the problem. Everyone is, everyone else, almost everyone else is inconsistent. They bash tr- Obama for this or bash Trump for that, but they wouldn't Obama. It's all a matter of the of who's president. And no one has developed a consistent philosophy. And ironically, you look back then, that was when Assad, the, the Civil War started, the Sunni rebellion, but Assad was strong. He was putting them down. It was before ISIS. And we and and um it's so ominous. You read this five years later. I can't believe it. And it was before so obviously Iran was always involved for for since the eighties with Hezbollah in Syria and Assad, not as strong as today, but we'll get to that in a minute. They're they're involved. And but it wouldn't so not as much as today. And then you didn't have ISIS. Um, but you had but what you did have is tribes. And 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 the groups are merely a reflection of the tribes. And once the rebellions earlier this decade popped out, you're never going to put that genie back in the bottle. So the Sunnis started rebelling. And we wanted to work with the Sunnis, which later became ISIS, to go and overthrow Assad. And Obama actually was kind of reluctant at the beginning – because it was to him, it was a distraction. He was busy with Obamacare, trying to. You know, he didn't want to get involved. The same way he didn't want to get involved in Libya. But ultimately, the media, the Democrats, and then the so-called conservative foreign, foreign policy establishment all got him involved. And remember the word "dithering." Obama's dithering. He's dithering in Syria. He's dithering in Libya. And I, ironically, was intellectually honest. I, there was a lot to bash him on. And what he did with Iran and the Iran deal. But in terms of involving U.S. troops, I was like, no, no, we don't want it. And then he agreed to get involved. And then I bashed him then. And the point I made is I'm just going to read to you the end of it. And I said, um, our only interest in Syria is ensuring that as many Islamists on both sides are killed and keep each other busy so they can't affect our national interests or threaten Israel. And, and we'll get to Israel in a minute. As long as the war is contained to Syria, a stalemate is the best outcome for our purposes so that neither Russia, Iran, Al-Qaeda, or other Islamists claim an outright victory. Sadly, in a world of 7 billion, there are innocent people killed on a daily basis due to civil wars, but we lack the resources or strategic plan to help those people in Syria without gratuitously tipping the scales to one of our arch enemies. Since then, we did tip the scales and ISIS grew. Then we're like, oh my gosh, we got to destroy ISIS. So we went in there and we destroyed ISIS. But that created Iranian Hezbollah hegemony. And now we're like, what the heck? Iranian Hezbollah hegemony. But isn't it true, Jordan, that the 2,000 troops we had in there there's two there's two issues with that. It's garbage in garbage garbage out. Number one, to the extent that it was so minimal, you can't say it's colossal pulling it out. What were we doing there? Number two is we were fighting the Sunni insurgency on behalf of Russia, Assad, and Iran. We weren't fighting. We we were we're like we're, Israel's harm now. I agree they're harm now because we cleaned out the Sunni insurgency for them. No. Yeah. No. I. That's the dirty secret. Is that. Russia and Iran and Assad and Hezbollah could make these comments about, oh, it's great that the U.S. is out now because we have, you know, free reign to what they call, you know, make peace deals, which they they want to, you know, continue to attack Sunni insurgents. But you know, the secret was that they were thrilled with what we were doing in the Middle East because, um, especially Secretary Mattis outright refused 
to attack Iranian assets, whether it was IRGC commandos marching around Syria, Syria, Iraq, uh, Hezbollah people. Um, Mattis insisted that we only target ISIS, not taking into account um, what you mentioned in the Fox News piece, which is you know, to try to make sure that no one power gets too much of a foothold there and kind of just let them fight, let the Islamists on both sides fight each other. Instead, we only decided to target one side. So I hope that the result will not be um, increasing Iranian hegemony in the region, but that's something that we're going to have to look at closely in the near future. You know, as we pull out of Syria, is it going to be possible for Iran to effectively assert control over the region? And that's something, you know, that can concern, that should concern lawmakers on both sides. And we really need to take a hard look at the U.S. policy, not just under Obama, the Obama administration, but under the, the Trump administration directed by Secretary Mattis, um, particularly when it comes to our so-called allies in Iraq and Lebanon that, you know, have basically just placated the Iranian regime. And we have undermined our allies, whether it be the Kurds, uh, Israel, um, rebels, you know, that aren't radical Islamists um, who wanted to support U.S. foreign policy efforts, uh, the Saudis' efforts in, in Yemen, how you know we're bashing them for trying to take out the Houthis. And it's just, you know, it, it's very bizarre that we we're all of a sudden so focused on Secretary Mattis and, you know, pulling out of Syria, yes. when the Syria policy from the beginning was not really solvent and did nothing to help you advance U.S. interests in the region or worldwide. And now Iran is in a very aggressive position. And I think that Trump made the right call when he was presented with what was going on. He saw that ISIS has definitely been pushed back. They no longer hold much territory in the Middle East. He was never really informed of the reality of the Iranian land bridge um, from Tehran to Beirut and how we have our foreign policy has funded and empowered the IRGC um, that, you know, we need to take a hard, I think now presents an opportunity, if anything, to take a hard look at what we are trying to accomplish in that region. And it doesn't necessarily, you know, I would be opposed to adding more ground troops, but um, we need to at least reserve the right to continue to conduct airstrikes, not necessarily only against ISIS fighters, but to take a look at all of our enemies in the region. And and that's what I want to do here. I want to give a list of 10, 12 things, give a vision of do's and don'ts in the Middle East and how it all works together. You can't look at one thing in a vacuum. Daniel, do, do you want ISIS to thrive? Uh, oh, no. Do, do you want Iran to thrive? Well, no, but they're actually fighting each other in here. Uh, do, do you want, you, you know, you, you got to have a full vision. This is the problem with a lot of these people. I want to point out that so many of this conservative foreign policy establishment, I say that word facetiously, um, they caused a lot of this. They're hypocritical in every theater. A broken clock is right twice. These guys aren't. Meaning, you and I disagree with a lot of things with Rand Paul, but he's right twice. In other words, there's times where he's actually right, where he shouldn't get involved. His more endgame is just not to get involved as an end to itself. But this is not about not getting involved, getting involved. It's about 
what is our interest in protecting America and having the most efficient ways that directly address what threatens us, what comes to our shores. Next layer is what threatens uh, commerce and shipping. The next layer is allies. And then what's the most effective way? And I want to prove that out of 15 issues, ground troops in civil war proxies between the two enemies is the worst counterproductive and, and most inefficient of all of them. Yet that is the one thing that they go nuts over. The same people that suddenly become religious and God opened the mouth of the donkey, as it says in numbers. You know, when it comes to uh, being tough on Iran, I want to show what it means to be hawkish for America, hawkish on Iran. It's not what they are saying. APAC comes out with a statement. They never talk. They couldn't give up utter bleep about the Iran deal. They supported it. They, you know, you want to criticize Trump? He didn't back Bolton up on the sanctions. The sanctions were killing Iran and it was free. We were crushing them. And they gave them access to financial banking, the financial system now. And, um, uh, oil, the you know, relinquish the oil sanctions. We had them on the run. That that's the antecedent to the Syria problem, and it doesn't cost us any tedious civil war. Nothing. We're funding Hezbollah directly in Lebanon. To be fair, Trump is continuing erroneous policies of the last two administrations. But you want to bash Trump? That there you go. We're directly doing it. Stop doing it. Um, he's being weak on Turkey. I agree he is being weak on Turkey. But that has nothing to do with the troops there. That is, we should say, you. yeah, we're pulling out. And, and by the way, you touch the Kurds. We kick you out of NATO. We sanction you. We divest you from, from all your investments and your mosques in America. We don't do that. Again, to be fair, Obama and Bush were horrible on Erdogan as well. You go after, you crush Hezbollah terror finance in Latin America. There's so many things we could do. We're talking about that. Um I'm not even halfway through, but th this is the thing. So, yeah, if you don't do any of that and then you pull out, you look kind of weak, but the pulling out is not the issue. Um, so isn't it correct that – so So uh, some people say, well, what about Israel? So now my question is how many troops does Israel have in Syria? Yeah, exactly. Zero. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Notice what Israel does. Israel doesn't do stupid – bleep okay israel does strike and maneuver strike and maneuver and that's what we need to do you stand outside the dumpster fire you make the right alliances the right soft power moves and then gosh immigration these very people are like we're gonna have 9-11 they're the ones that caused 9-11 they and because of the wars because then we feel bad and we bring in from syria uh, I cannot tell you the number of refugees we've had plotting problems, particularly from Iraq. We let them in because of the war. We let them in from Afghanistan. Shut down immigration. Shut down the SIAs coming in. Shut down Hezbollah in Latin America. Deal with the drug cartels, which are connected in some ways, at least tangentially. Um, why is nobody a hawk on those issues? It drives me nuts. It's just, we pull out of Syria like – like and look, if you're Ben Sass or some of these like never Trumpers, that your brand is just never Trump ideology, just like you have Trump ideology. So then, bash. I, I could give you ten things to bash Trump on, on on foreign policy if you want, just like on domestic. They don't do it. The, the a broken clock is white, right twice. These guys are right never. It, it, it's crazy to see, especially you know people who we once considered or still consider sometimes allies on foreign policy issues, having a total meltdown about this. And, you know, from some of our favorite think tanks who are promoting this open borders agenda, um, all of a sudden are up in arms 
when we're withdrawing from Syria and Iraq and there's, you know, some my, some group of supposed refugees living there that they're very concerned about. But when it comes to border security, um, they're ready to pack it in. And it just seems like, you know, they have their priorities so mixed up. And it, when you see these people talking about uh, Afghanistan and Syria and then saying that America needs to be, you know, needs to have open borders and but we need to be interventionists and we need to help the Syrian people and the Afghan people against the Taliban. And we need to, you know, risk our service members to protect, um, you know, these foreign awful ideologies. I think that that should really draw pause um, when you're, when you're watching these people, you know, yep. distribute their ideology. And it's just, it's so backwards and it's so unfortunate. And, so many people have been propagandized by um, this hyper-interventionist neoconservatism in particular that I think, luckily, the Trump era, we've seen um, those voices are becoming more and more irrelevant. So I think that's that's a and, big positive. You know, you have and these, Jordan. That's these, very important. What you just said. I just want to reiterate that. Um, didn't mean to cut you off there. I, I, I want to make sure our listeners get this. To be clear, and we're going to spell this out, there's aspects of this we have problems with what Trump is doing. But part of the problem is you got to sympathize with him in this sense. And again, you know, to our new listeners from our sister network that we now uh, merge with, The Blaze, um, you know, if you listen to me for even one week, you know, I savaged Trump all week on on issues. I was the only one to stand up to him on jailbreak for literally violating his campaign promise in the most spectacular fashion. We have no problems. We are not about. Trump or Obama, you know, we're remarkably consistent with what we want done, what we don't want done. But the problem is we're always complaining that we're getting involved in these never endless wars, but and our security is worse and we're not doing the things we should be. So, like, he actually listens and he gets out and then we're like, oh, you can't do that. Now, part of the problem is that he doesn't have an affirmative vision. Right? Nuance is not his thing. And he has good instincts on certain things. And, and I think this is one of them. But because the the guys who monopolized foreign policy are these idiots. He doesn't have people telling him, look, you're right to pull out, but you also got to be tough on Erdogan. Um, at the same time, don't take a call from Erdogan and look like you're pulling out because of him. He is the problem. You don't need the troops there to check him, but you need to give Israel the confidence and the Kurds that you're going to strike and maneuver if need be, and you're mainly going to use soft power to, to just – I mean if you would just threaten Erdogan, like people are like, Daniel – you're right about the Sunni Shia stuff. You're right. I, I get that. But but come on, Erdogan. Like, like, isn't this a victory for him? And I'm like, well, what if we pulled out our troops and then at the same time Trump gave a speech and said, hey, uh, hey, Erdogan boy, um, about that NATO membership, um, about the sanctions, uh, you know, we wouldn't want you to lose your nice things, would we? Is that being weak? But he's not doing it. I mean, that's the problem. Yeah, that, that, that's the one troubling aspect about the Syria withdrawal. Um, and and I, I want to preface this by saying that because we, we shouldn't um, – people shouldn't justify foreign policy moves um, over whether or not our adversaries appear to be supportive or not supportive yeah. of them because that's like totally ridiculous. But I, I think when it comes to Erdogan, um, the president – has got has gotten bad advice on the Turkey front. Um, Turkey, I think, is 
beyond repair under the Erdogan regime. They are yep. radical Islamists and funding. You know, they've kind of taken the place of the old Saudi Arabia, them and the Qataris. Uh, we've discussed this on your show quite a bit um, when it comes to funding, you know, radical uh, mosques, um, domestic U.S. Islamist groups. They're bad news. And uh, President Erdogan is not to be trusted. But you had people like Secretary Mattis who viewed Turkey as a traditional ally, you know, along with Lebanon, along with Iraq, and did not see our foreign policy needs to be updated constantly to observe the realities of the world that is around us. And a lot of the time, the Pentagon, I think, and the intelligence community is not up to date on the real, the geopolitical realities of the countries that we do business mm-hmm. with, um, you know, both on a military cooperation and yep. economic cooperation standpoint. And Erdogan really stands out here. So you have to hope that um, the president comes to his senses on this issue. And, you know, Erdogan is not to be trusted. I mean, this is a guy whose security detail, every time he comes into Washington, D.C., starts beating up um, American protesters. You know, they're, I hate to use the word savages, but these are bad people. Bad people. Erdogan is not to be trusted. That's a very smart point because I think the big difference between us and a lot of these people is that they think Turkey is still salvageable. So if you agree to that premise, some of what they're saying makes sense, but it's beyond that. It's this neo-Ottoman mentality to Together with the modern-day jihadist view, I mean, he's regarded as the Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas leader of the world. That's not going to change unless you find a way to subvert him and get him out of there. But certainly, you're never going to work with him. Um, so, to me, that answers the Kurd Turkey thing. That it's kind of like, well, uh, how could people f- afford insurance, Daniel, if we appeal repeal Obamacare? Well, if you do the other things we're saying, you would have all the other components, and the pre-existing condition problem is only because of the initial government intervention. Right? That is our view. So, it's a similar thing on foreign policy. We would be tough on these 15 other fronts that are more efficient and smarter that, frankly, these guys are weak on. And that's the thing. These guys are always for our previous view in the wrong theater. So they were nowhere with the Kurds. Now they're using the Kurds to justify staying in Syria. They were nowhere with the need to counter Iran when they were trashing MBS just days ago. The same coalition. Unanimous view for jailbreak. Unanimous view for Khashoggi. And now unanimous view for staying in Syria. The whole political class. Um, What do you mean we have to counter Iran? Like, what? Let me I want to know if you agree with this analogy. Here's how I want to unpack um Iraq and Syria, Sunni Shia and with that finish answering the problem that some have are they're concerned about the Kurds and and Israel in particular. If you picture you have um a really terrible you know terrible savages. A terrible savage that has a headquarters on out in the open on a prairie. And inside of that is all his wealth and gold and silver and all his plans and also his friends and family who are just are savages too. And we have a plan. We could just blow him up in three seconds. We could destroy everything. But several of his proxies, several of his associates run out of the house, down the prairie, into a sewer that's very narrow to get into with Sharks, alligators, snakes, scorpions, and then other terrible savages 
that are now fighting them. And then people say, have no interest in just destroying the house with the people and the gold and the silver and the blueprints. They say, we need to get tough. Don't you understand? We need to go down that sewer pipe. And that that's how I feel. They do like, no, we, you and I are, are, there's no one more hawkish on Iran than us. Rouhani said he's going to attack us with what? Drugs, migrants, and, and bombs and terrorism. That's the drugs. It's the Hezbollah. It's the counterfinance. It's the border. It's the SIAs. It's the Hezbollah networks in our country. These people don't give a damn about them. In fact, every time Trump tries to clamp down on that and, you know, on immigration or things like that, they call them a racist, these very people. Um, you know, it's th- th- there's nothing you can do. It's the worst avenue. We don't need to shadow box them in every proxy. And I would argue the opposite. By us doing it, we're helping them. Russia was not involved with us. I mean, he was involved with Assad for 30 years, for 50 years, whatever. But I mean, he, he, Assad, at the time I wrote that article, he was going to fall. Russia, Putin was not helping him because they were smart. They knew you can't quell the Sunni insurgency. They saw what happened to us in Iraq. They're not dumb. They don't do stupid things for their purposes. But we came in and held down temporarily the Sunni insurgency for Iran and Russia. Then they're like, sure, we'll get involved. And that screwed Israel over. They opposed that. Now they're like, well, Israel's upset because you're they're not really upset about the pullout. The 2000 troops weren't fighting them. We were helping Iran. It's I think, isn't it more a general sense that they're afraid Trump is going to other things is not keeping them in check. I know they're disappointed with him in the sanctions in Erdogan. Isn't it more that than the 2000 troops? Yeah, yeah, 100 percent. I mean, the people that were behind the, the strategy in Syria um, are, are the reason why Israel. Well, I don't think that Israel is vulnerable. I think they're doing a great job protecting themselves. I think the issue with Hezbollah on the Lebanon border is becoming a huge issue. Um, but that issue was arguably helped by the U.S. and the coalition's Syria policy that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, only took into account the Sunni um, jihadists and did nothing about Iran's incursion into the region. If, if hypothetically, we never had or we, we didn't, you know, we focused on both sides and say we were killing Sunni and Shiite uh, jihadis and Hezbollah, ISIS, Al Qaeda, you know, the IRGC guys, if we were just getting them equally, I don't think you'd see as much of a, a buildup on the Israel Lebanon border as you'd have today. So for people now to say, oh, now you're leaving Syria, you're putting Israel in this vulnerable position, look at the Kurds, you know, the Kurds are doing all this stuff. And, it's just, it's outrageous. And then they want to go back to Syria. They don't want, they have no issue with the actual war policy in Syria. So that's why it doesn't make any sense. Because if you can, if you go back to Syria, let's say that President Trump didn't say a word this week about Syria, and we continue the policy, Mattis was still in charge, we would be empowering Russia, Iran, and Assad. And that's why I, but, I but, 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 why but you're going to destabilize. Uh, you're going to destabilize Syria. We wouldn't want to destabilize Syria, would we? I, I mean, it's mentally <laughs> exactly. ill. And, and then that, also, that's look, the big buzzword: destabilization. It, it really makes no sense, and it's basically what politicians say 
when they want when they're not getting their preferred policy. They don't want to change the status quo. This, this is what scares me. It, again, domestic policy, they use the term. We don't want to destabilize the stock market so we can't have a budget fight over over our sovereignty. We don't want to destabilize the healthcare markets. The inveterate incumbent powers, and, and this is what's the problem with the military-industrial complex. They get involved in fights because we have bad leadership, but then once it's there, they keep advocating for it, and everyone's like, I mean, you, we have we have prominent conservative commentators openly calling for a coup, a military coup against Trump. And, and they're like, what do you mean? The military leaders said they don't want this, but they said they they don't they, they want transgenderism too. I mean, like, you know, even though Colonel, uh, General Dempsey of the, the last, I mean, he's not there anymore, but the last commander of the Marines, he had the painstaking, most painstaking study about the women in combat and everything, and, and it proved him right, and they didn't listen. We don't have good generals anymore. And again, I am a patent guy. I am the, I, I love war. No, I, I mean, war is hell, but you know what I mean? I love killing bad guys, yeah. but there's nothing to do there. There's a much more effective way of blowing up the house. If you care about Israel, get on Trump's case and give Bolton backing against the State Department, uh, which these guys couldn't care less about, which APAC couldn't care less about, of block them to, uh, from from getting visas to the financial institutions in New York and, and, and the oil um, sanctions and the Annex 3, the nuclear civil um, – cooperation. This is big stuff. We were crushing them. They were desperate. Um, That's the antecedent. They don't have money. They couldn't get involved. And then Hezbollah. Okay, so they're getting less money from Iran because of the sanctions. They get it from the cocaine trade. Um, his, uh, Sessions started to work on this. It's all Homeland Security. It's FBI. It's Treasury Department. We need, we need to uh, uh, deport them with the ones that are aliens. We need to convict them in, the, in these trials. We need to freeze the assets. You choke them off. The number one request from Rouhani to Obama for the, in return for the Iran deal was what? The well, number one request uh, was cash. <laughs> was cash. Well, but w- what did he? Assets. What was the side deal? What did he demand of Obama? Get rid of what? Oh, the sanctions. Yeah. Yeah, the sanctions. But part of the sanctions was Operation Cassandra. That oh, was right, the right, right. the yeah. joint operation to go after his bull in Latin America. And you think like, well, well, what does that have to do with anything? That's the mother's milk. They, may, I mean, it, it's the funding. That's what you got to go after. That's the most efficient, effective way to to do this. That's how you protect us and Israel. Stop arming the Lebanese army. You know, I Tablet Magazine as a uh, uh, what, what's his name Tony Badrin and and Lee Smith did great work on this stuff. Um, I'm going to link to one of their articles on how we're literally – and again, it's not Trump y- uniquely. He's just continuing the previous administration policies. We're working with the Shiite militias, uh, some of them are Hezbollah, in, in Iraq. Uh, I mean this is the – it's a dumpster fire. Yeah, this is the interesting thing is that there's a separation between the Trump administration's White House policy when it comes to Iran – and the State Department and DOD's policies, which empower Iran. You know, Trump has done such a good job um, ending the JCPOA, the Iran deal, in reimposing sanctions on Iran, making it very difficult for their regime to operate in global financial markets. But at the same time, our military policy and our diplomatic policy has empowered Iran. So I think that's important for people to separate those two things. And while it seems kind of strange that, you know, you have two opposite agendas under the same administration, it's kind of the reality of our bureaucracy in the U.S. government. That is the problem. And, 
you know, just to, I think we need to reconstruct the history here um, before we wind down um, when you discuss Israel. All these people, and again, a lot of these same people that are worried about Israel love Mattis, who called Israel an apartheid state, which, you know, again, they, they have no vision. But here is the dirty little secret. It all gets back to the original Iran Iraq war. Do you believe it was a colossal mistake or not? That's what it gets down to. I supported it when I was a young tadpole, um, 12th grade. So, you know, because I just viewed, look, they were violent. Saddam was violating the terms of the, of the, um, of the ceasefire of the Gulf war. Uh, Clinton looked weak at the time and because he wasn't responding, but I never thought about the Sunni Shia tribal stuff. I never thought about, well, what do you do? And you want to talk about the, the same people, like the Iraq war is a religion and that I'm not trying to like bet. I'm not trying to like poke holes that, Oh, you support that. I, I want to show how this is the antecedent to it. And we're going to trace the history to the present on how this happened and the lessons we should have learned. Cause that's the key to understanding Syria right now today. And that's this, you want to talk about Israel and helping or harming Israel with in- interventions. Why net news Dot com. That's one of the Israeli papers. This is September 1st, 2007. We're going to link to this. Israel warned us, warned U.S. against Iraq invasion, U.S. official says. And they go on to explain how Israel, you know, they didn't undermine. They just quietly, you know, ur- urged uh, the Bush administration in December 2001. They said, guys, look, I mean, you know, and, and, and the tragic irony is the left and some of the kind of like anti-Israel figures on the Ron Paulish type of right, they, um, not that everyone who likes Ron Paul's anti-Semite, I'm certainly not saying that, you know, but th- those, those elements, they all said Iraq was a war for Israel. And I, cause they thought, you know, that Saddam lobbed 39, um, uh, Scud missiles at Israel during the Gulf War. So they figured it was because of that. But no, Israel's very strategic and they didn't like Saddam, but they knew Saddam didn't harm them. Iran was their problem. They said, no, Iran's the issue. And we cleaned out Iran's arch enemy, which was the buffer to Israel. We cleaned it out for them. It was never going to work because then you have the South, which was Shiite dominated, and Baghdad, which was Shiite dominated. Iran took that over. And then so that's bad enough that you gave Iraq to Iran. But then the rest of it, except for the Kurds, and we'll get to that in a minute, the north, but the Anbar province was the Sunnis. So the Sunnis rebelled. It was a rubber band effect. And we had to own both at the same time. We'd get blown up by al-Sadr, right, the Shiite militias. And then while we were fighting the Sunni insurgents for Iran, Iran was planting those, um, I forgot the acronym, the specialized IEDs, terrible, terrible, killed like a thousand of our troops um, and, and and permanently blew up limbs of, of, of who knows how many. And and then the, then the and every day you remember this, it's like it was yesterday, Ramadi and um, Fallujah and Tikrit and the Sunni triangle every day back and forth. And, and everyone was like, you know, and, and then we had the surge and the surge tamped down um, the the insurgency of of um of the sunnis but here's the big lie folks if you take nothing out from the show but this point here is the key point this is where we diverge bifurcate from everyone else the standard view is that the surge worked and obama pulled out too quickly and that's how isis came about 
And we're about to repeat the same mistake in Syria. The reality is this. If you put 150,000 troops there, which we did, at a very painful cost, which it was, you could temporarily put a Band-Aid and destroy the command and control of that iteration of that Sunni insurgency. But what they never understood was that we permanently lost Baghdad and the rest of the country to Iran. And not only was that in itself a problem, even though these same idiots were treating them as allies and and Baghdad is really to this day an enemy, but that also served as a rubber band effect to allure the insurgency of the the Sunni tribes. It was Al-Qaeda in Iraq, then it was ISIS, then it's going to be the next thing. It's always going to be that way in perpetuity. We should have just supported the Kurds for a separate state, forget about the Sunnis and the Shias. Treat them both as enemies, do strike and maneuver when needed, but never hold it. It spilled over into Syria along with the um, insurgency. And then we went after Assad. It blew up ISIS. Then we cleaned out the Sunni insurgency again under ISIS, and then Iran became stronger than ever. And then they're like, Daniel, if you pull out. And, and, and again, at least back then there were 150,000 troops. So you could claim I, – I don't disagree that if we had 200,000 troops in, in Syria now, we could kind of hold things down. But then after a, a year or two, they're going to start the guerrilla warfare, and we can't we, – we, we, our military can't do that. There, you can't – this is what I've learned. You can't kill your way out of an insurgency. In other words – um, let me let me and I, I promise I'll shut up after this. I just got to get this all out um, in Bulgaria. Let's say let's say uh, Turkey or Russia or some bad entity would attack Bulgaria and take it over. So that's a question of I, we could debate to intervene or not to intervene. That is the question. What's the risk versus return matrix? What's the strategic interest? What would it cost? How many would die? Let's game it out. But we have the ABCs. We know what is feasible. It's a Western state that is not Islamic, and an external force took it over by force. You just kick them out, and then you preserve what you had before. Right? It's it's there. This is not even a question of... Hawk or dove, in isolationist or intervention, is nothing to. There's no. There's nothing to do. We're, and 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 then on top of it, we have two thousand troops. I don't understand this, Jordan. What of it do you agree or disagree with? Oh, in terms of your description of the Iraq War, I'm with you 100. Um, percent I think it's important to bring up uh, Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait, and I, I think that. You know, that's that was a foreign policy decision that in that in my view was probably the right decision. We had, you know, a very small country in Kuwait being invaded. Um, we kicked Saddam's butt and we, we pushed him out of there. The problem was, you know, as you mentioned in that article that Saddam Hussein was a brutal dictator, um, but we found out later that he really posed no threat to the US and he really just wanted to dominate Iraq. And it was the and it was interesting, you know, that the same people are, to fast forward to today, the same people who are telling us, oh, you know, if you withdraw from Syria, Israel's going to be lost, you know, besides the fact that they're ignoring the strategy that hurts Israel. Um, this was the same case during the Iraq war when the, the, the people who proclaimed to be pro-Israel uh, were the same people demanding that Israel doesn't, didn't respond to Saddam Hussein's use of Scud missiles 
um, against Israel and then said that we need to invade Saddam because of whatever reason, because he's a barbaric dictator and hand it over to Iran. So now, you know, you fast forward to present day and Iraq is not so much an ally, especially the controlling forces in Baghdad are very, um, you know, Shia supremacist and also, you know, have been abusing the relationship with the Kurds. And, you know, the same people who are now, you know, mad about, I think you discussed this earlier, the same people who are mad about the Syria withdrawal completely ignored. Um, we made a big push when the Kurds in northern Iraq wanted a referendum for an independent state, which would have been very pro-Israel, pro-America. And this issue, they said, could not be touched because, you know, you have to worry about the, the government of Baghdad and they're all upset. This is a horribly sectarian government that is encouraging um, through its through its violence against Sunnis, um, basically weaponizing these people into Al Qaeda and ISIS. So I think it goes back to you know the original sense that we need to be very cautious when it comes to intervening in foreign lands, and especially in in the Middle East and in yeah. Southwest Asia, where American intervention has tended to um, almost you know incite some of the population because they are naturally inclined through their ideology to hate us. So yep. when they're presented with an American soldier, and, and you talked about the, um, the IEDs, you know, the Shia extremists and the Sunni extremists all wanted, wanted to, to kill us basically because, uh, you know, we had American soldiers there and they hated us equally. And when it comes to foreign intervention, we always need to take into account that, you know, they can't, it's really the, when people say, you know, we need to we need to hit them over there so they can't hit us at home. But what they <laughs> fail to discuss is that when you when we hit them over there, that is making American soldiers very vulnerable when you're stationing them in remote yep. outposts in, you know, on the Afghan Pakistan border Sitting ducks. in Iraq. And they these people, for for the most part, and we've discussed this at length, do not possess the capacity to other than the Iranian regime with long range ballistic missiles, they can't hit us. You know, they, they can, they can only yep. get to us through our broken immigration system and our yep. shoddy border security. But that's like Lindsey Graham was out yesterday saying, if we don't stay in Afghanistan and Iraq, we're going to have another nine 11, which, which really annoys me by the way. We are going to have one because of his, his immigration policies. Yeah. But the which are connected he, to the wars. He, yeah. And, and I think that when people are, are threatening, it's just so disgusting when I it, see it really something like is. that. And, and people should outright reject that and be just as disgusted about, you know, when senators are trying to use this, I guess you can call it like this 9-11 veto, um, that they, are, they, they want their, their Afghanistan and, and Iraq and Syria policies so bad that they're willing to basically threaten us with another 9-11 or when something bad happens, let's say if there's a, you know, God forbid a terrorist attack somewhere in the United States in the next few months, a guy like Lindsey Graham is going to step up and say, Oh, I, I warned you. you I know, warned you. We left Afghanistan. Even though the guy's going to come from immigration. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Meaning he, exactly. he didn't, meaning he didn't fly over in an ISIS, uh, F-16, and you know what I mean? It, it, we let him in the country. 
um, and it wasn't command and control, it was inspired. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, again, the Sunnis don't affect us. Iran, we're big hawks on, but again, there's an appropriate way to uh, attack them, and there's a way that th- that actually helps them. And that's the bottom line here, that 2,000 troops in Syria is not why they're it's not why they're they already are powerful there are you worried about israel we've we've been worried about israel for five years that we've been doing this um and israel was worried about the iraq war that these guys support the answer to israel which is the same answer to america is secure borders going after terror finance going after cutter Going after Turkey, but not in a you know soft power sanctions. Stop funding the uh, Baghdad. Stop funding Lebanon. That's um, it's the same way. If you had price transparency and healthcare and all the things we want to do, a lot of these problems would become moot. You make the plays you can make. It's got to be a full vision, and you got to be consistent about it. I want to. So so we we covered that, and I think um, you know the Israel angle is good. Gosh, there was something you said that. I thought really we needed to double down on, but it will come back to me. There is an uncomfortable discussion, and I want to have this about the Kurds. Um, One area where, to me, the facts on the ground and my understanding have changed a little bit, I was very hawkish on the Kurds. And I still think that if at the right time we would have been investing in them rather than in all the other stupidity of of the Sunnis and Shias in in Iraq and Syria and Lebanon and all the Afghanistan – I think it could have worked, but the problem is, is it stands now because they've just gone downhill. You have the Barzani clan that runs it. They're corrupt as anything. And I don't mean baseline corruption. There's, there's, there's big problems. Then you have, you know, we always have envisioned them as the refuge for the Christians. Well, here I'm going to read to you from the Iraqi Christian Human Rights Council. Um, Iraqi and Syrian Christians are facing terrorism from Kurdish Asayish forces, Kurd secret police that kidnaps, beats up, threatens Middle East Christians. Every week we get reports of Asayish forces terrorizing Middle East Christians. Time for U.S. to stop funding the terrorism. After an extensive inquiry, Iraqi Christians has found that the two biggest problems facing Iraqi and Syrian Christians currently are Islamic terrorism and Kurdish terrorism separatists. Um, Iraqi Christians also face problems from Shabaks. Those are the Kurdish Shias. Okay, that's a different... That's uh, the Kurdish Shias that live like um, near Mosul and Kirk- Kirkuk. But um, how much of this is true and how much of this should color our like thing? Like really? So the one thing ke- keeping us there are the Kurds now? I mean, I- I'm really not loaded. And I say this with a lot of sorrow because I was very pro-Kurd. H- how should we look at this? Well, I think it depends on a case-by-case basis. You know, the, the Kurdish... Um, Territory and you know autonomous region in northern Iraq, I think, is could potentially be a trustworthy U.S. ally. But you have that split between the Talibanis, which are like more leftists aligned with Iran, and the Barzanis, who are, um, I guess, more totalitarian but aligned with the United States. And you do have you know this, this inner ethnic clashes between Kurds and Assyrian Christians. Um, and those are certainly important issues. Um, the issue, I think, with with figuring out where we can support the Kurds is that you know it's going to clash with big states, Iraq, Turkey, um, Iran, and you need to have a if you want the Kurdish issue to be successful, 
it needs to be a you know something that is basically ordered top down from the Trump administration because I, I think that decentralization is very important and to give autonomy to the Kurds would be a benefit for the United States. But we're at the point right now, and I think this is what you're kind of getting to, that it's going to, I don't know if it's, and it's unfortunate because, you know, I've, I've supported Kurdish sure. ambitions for autonomy for so long. Um, it's getting to the point where, is it really realistic at this point yes. to see the creation of a Kurdish state? Um, are we past that point? And I, th- I think that's, that's fair to debate. You know, what can we actually yes. salvage at this point? for Kurdish national ambitions. Um, I think it's, it's, it's important to remain close with the Kurds because they are a great alternative to the jihadi Sunni and Shias in the region. Um, and they share a lot of our, I guess, more secular um, values and commitment to, you know, human flourishing. If you, if you go to uh Erbil in northern Iraq, um, in the Kurdish autonomous region, they've created a very impressive uh, outpost there. But they're, you know, constantly being abused by Baghdad and others. And we need to figure out, you know, whether what U.S. policy can do to support them. But in terms of the Syria withdrawal, I don't think that it's a reason uh, on itself to stay in Syria. Unfortunately, that that's what I wanted to get out of you because I'm I'm getting a lot of that. And I'm like. You know, you, you got to sympathize with Trump on this in the sense that, look, we all complain about the 17 years in Afghanistan. And look, we don't have time to get into that. We'll have to cross that bridge uh, next week or two weeks when he actually winds up pulling out or doesn't pull out. But like, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. But but not in this way, not in that. And, and like he, he looks at it and says, look, we've been in Syria for about four years. So it's already a while. Now, it's not as many. So you m- might be like, come on, what's the big deal? But Conversely, in Trump's favor, I will tell you it's the other way around too. It swings both ways. So therefore, it's not as big of a deal. You know, you don't have that kind of like the disruption that everyone talks about as much as you would in Afghanistan, even though we think it's worth it. You know, and he's like, it's the perfect time. The Sunni insurgency is not nothing. So it's not like a free reign, but then, you know, it's not like the Sunnis are really going wild. So then you're scared. Well, maybe we do need to fight them. It's the perfect thing in my mind that. You know, again, don't listen to their public statements about America. It's when we're out, they're going to have to own the Sunnis now. Ahar al-Sham is a different group already propping up. You're not – the Sunnis are not going to just go quiet back to – you know, th- this was very short history. Syria and Iraq were from World War One. Once the tribes burst out. You're not going to put put that nation state back together. Yes, Assad won officially, but he didn't win. They're going to keep dogging him, and they're going to dog Russia, and they're going to dog Iran. Now, I want to make just one more point. I know you got to go in, in a couple minutes very soon. I want to keep you, but um, one very smart thing a, a friend of ours said that you know she she's a, a former CIA agent, and. I agree with her point, but her point actually proves our outcome, not what she was advocating for, in that her point is, no, no, no. The establishment always views that there's a sharp delineation between the Sunnis and Shias, and really, they all work together to defeat the West in some fronts. I was like, exactly! 
in the in, in those fronts are where we should combat them both. But me, meaning, like this is my understanding of how it works. In the tribal lands in Syria, they're cutting each other's throats off. But then at the same time, and a lot of Americans would have a hard time relating to this, but this is what happens. We know from the court documents in the anti-Iran 9-11 trials that Al-Qaeda was in Iran and they got funding from Iran and Iran helped them plan it. So they'll be cutting their heads off, but then like an ISIS or Al-Qaeda or Nusra guy calls up, uh, you know, the, the, the mullahs like, okay, I got plan to kill the vest. Okay, I give you a visa. You come here. So he'll give him a visa. He'll come in there and plot it while just in general, they're killing each other in Syria. So that's my point. Don't get into the Syria civil war with them. If anything, it hurts Iran. Don't mow the grass for them. Don't mow the uh, ISIS doesn't affect us. You know, everyone in America has heard of ISIS. How many have heard of Sinaloa, Jalisco, Golfo, Zetas? They are they dump people in acid. They they do they kill thirty thousand Mexicans a stone throws away from El Paso and Laredo. They kills tens of thousands of Americans with drugs and gangs and criminal aliens. And they enable the worst hundreds of billions of fiscal calamity of now Kirsten Nielsen admitted it's not 11 million. It's probably more like 15 to 17 million illegals in this country. That's the issue. Let's do all the strong things we called for. And I think the 2000 soldiers in Syria will be a moot point if we do that all. Jordan, closing thoughts. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I was talking about um, on social media yesterday how outraged I was when people kept bringing up the next 9-11 if we don't go to Afghanistan. And, I, and, and someone in the uh, one of the commenters said, you know, hold on a second. You know, if we don't have a wall, that's when the next that's going to be the next 9-11. If we don't fix our visa issue, that's that's when the next 9-11 happens. And I think that's exactly right, is that we need to prioritize what's going on close to home. These people, you know, in Afghanistan are too busy worrying about not starving rather than, you know, flying the, the fictitious, uh, you know, F 35 that they don't have into America. <laughs> we need to worry about the drug cartels, the human trafficking, um, the, the epidemic of potential, you know, terror crossing the border that's funded by Iran and its proxies. Those are real threats. Um, and we need to secure the border we need to fix our immigration system. We need to figure out, you know, who's coming into this country, who's overstaying their visas. We don't need to worry about what's going on in the wilds of Afghanistan, where these people have never traveled two miles outside of their home their entire life. We really need to hesitate when it comes to sending U.S. troops to these places. And remember, they can't operate without money, and we control the banking system. We we are oil superpowers. That is how you leverage them. Um, I look forward to a, another great year, Jordan, together um, where we're going to explore the drugs, the migrants, the terrorism, the SIA routes, all these angles because we care about Iran. It's the nuclear program has to be choked off. That's the threat because even without immigration, that will or the long range uh, ballistic missiles. But aside from that, none of this other stuff affects us unless we allow it to, unless we self-immolate, unless we bring it here. And maybe you might say, well, they're already here. But you know, then nothing we're going to do in, in overseas is going to stop that. Then it becomes an FBI, DEA in some cases when it involves drugs, all the 
it's domestic law enforcement. We got to go after them, um, which is why jailbreak was so retarded. As uh, Chuck Grassley himself said before he was bought off in 2014, increasingly drugs is the mother's milk of catching terrorists. And when you get rid of the mandatory minimums, you lose a big investigative tool um, for the you know mules we catch to uh, give up some of these networks. I mean, this is this is it's, it's criminal that these people who claim to be hawks on Israel, hawks on Iran. Hawks for American security don't give a darn about these 15 other issues. You do these 15 other issues, we'll be in good shape. Trump is not doing all them, but to be fair, he's doing better in a lot of them than his predecessors. Others, he's not precisely because he's listening to these idiots. If we only had a positive movement to give him a vision, I think we'd have a much better chance of him listening. Thanks for your time, Jordan. Thanks for a great year. I'm assuming we'll be back in the new year. We'll be back here with the show probably Wednesday. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year's to our listeners. You could follow Daniel Horowitz at dharwitz at blazemedia.com or at Arm and Conservative. Jordan, what is your contact info? Yeah, I think it's still Jordan at CRTV.com. So you could email me there from now. I have a new Blaze Media email, but I forgot what it is. So Jordan <laughs> at CRTV.com, and it'll automatically forward to my Blaze Media account. And at Jordan Shacktail, watch for our show notes, watch for our previous show, watch for our article on the filibuster and what it is and what it isn't. So much more to leave on the table. Enjoy Christmas. Enjoy your time off. Have a great weekend and God bless. 